0: The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it today. It's been read in a language that we understand, but we acknowledge, oh God, that we need more than just human understanding. We need spiritual understanding. We need you to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things. We need you, O God, to open our hearts that we might be receptive to your word and to the preaching of it. Father, I do pray for your people. I pray that in your faithfulness, you administer and shepherd their hearts and their minds this day. Lord, help all of us, make us more like Jesus. Help us to live for him. God, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is beyond argument that Christians are called to forgive. It is beyond dispute that Christians are called to forgive one another. The Lord Jesus made this clear many times, but he made this clear, especially when asked by the apostle Peter in Matthew 18, he was asked, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You likely know already how Jesus responded. Jesus responded and said, I do not say to you seven times but 77 times. Jesus then follows this with a parable, a parable about an unforgiving servant, a servant who, though he had been forgiven much, does not in turn forgive others. Instead, he treats them harshly and so gets treated harshly himself. Jesus then concludes that parable in Matthew 18.35, and this is what he says. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I say again, it is beyond argument that Christians are called to forgive one another. Even so, forgiveness isn't always easy, is it? Forgiveness can be hard. Forgiveness is tough. But as hard as forgiveness might be, perhaps even harder is what flows from it, what follows from it, the process of reconciliation, the process of being reconciled one to another. In fact, uh, our reconciliation most times looks like a reunion, not reconciliation. I mean, think about it. I can forgive my family member when he sins against me, but I would much rather keep him at the opposite end of the dinner table than right beside me when we get together. Sure, we can come together at that family reunion. That's what good family members do, right? We show up. But when it's over, we feel a great sense of relief, don't we? I don't have to look at that person anymore, nor I don't even have to speak to them, no pressure. I can go my own way. So forgiveness? Sure, that's the good and right thing to do. Reconciliation, oftentimes we say, that's just a bridge too far. That's just a bridge too far. If this sounds familiar to you, as it sounds like a gong in my ears, if this sounds familiar to you, you're in good company. We're a family and as a family ourselves on a lifelong journey to become more like Christ in our everyday experiences, we understand our great need our great need to grow in the great grace that God has provided us. That's, I think, one of the reasons why we find comfort in a story like Joseph's. Though we may not experience a life just like his, we do experience some degree of hurt, some degree of suffering, and some degree of growth like his. Perhaps that is why today's text resonates so clearly with our own hearts For as we continue through chapter 42, we see that Joseph's dealings with his brothers actually provide for us a a living illustration of what life is like for us when we find ourselves not only called to forgive, but to move towards another in more than just reunion, but to move toward them in reconciliation. For in the verses before us, Joseph finds himself, I would say, standing at the edge of a bridge. But is it a bridge too far, a bridge too far to cross? So chapter 42 before us is but the beginning of a long process for Joseph and his brothers toward true forgiveness and true reconciliation. And I wish I could just give it all to you this morning, but I can't because it's a process that continues actually all the way until chapter 50. We're going to see it over the next five weeks. But it's important that we look today because if, if we learn nothing else from studying Joseph, from studying Genesis 37 through 50, from studying God's sovereign grace in the story of Joseph, if we learn nothing else, let us learn this. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he is faithfully at work for his people to accomplish his good purposes in them to accomplish his good purposes for them and to accomplish his good purposes through them. So let us first look this morning. Let's look first at how the Lord works in his faithfulness towards this coming true forgiveness and reconciliation. If you're taking notes, and I know many of you are, this is our first point this morning how the Lord works. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 42 take us back. They take us away from Egypt where Joseph is. They take us back to the land of Canaan and to Jacob and his family. As we already know, the famine is severe in the land. If we didn't know that, it tells us that in verse 5. When, when Jacob learns that there is grain for sale in Egypt, he turns to his sons in verse one, and this is one of my favorite verses, because he asks a question that has been asked and is still being asked by fathers even up until this day. What are you doing? Why are you doing nothing? Why are you just, in the Hebrew, sitting there looking at each other? instead of doing something to help the family. Get off the couch. Turn off the video game. Put away your phone. Come back away from the soccer field. Whatever it is, why are you just doing nothing? They're in dire straits. Any other dads ask that question? This is a dire situation. Look at how Jacob describes it himself in verse 2. When he tells his sons to go down to Egypt and buy grain, I quote, so that we may live and not die. They're hungry. See the writing on the wall. If we don't get food, we're going to die. This is serious stuff. But apparently the brothers are not taking it very seriously. Now what we should remember is that this is not the first time that Canaan and the people there have suffered because of famine. You might remember that when Jacob's grandfather Abraham was first called to move to the land of Canaan, he was told, this is gonna be a fruitful land. It would be a blessing to you. And there, your family is gonna be a blessing to the whole world. It's a land flowing with blessing. But what happened? Almost as soon as Abraham arrived in the land of Canaan, do you remember? You can see it in Genesis twelve ten. there's a famine. Almost immediately, there's a famine in the land. So Abraham, he doesn't just trust that the Lord is going to provide and make it happen. He takes matters into his own hands. And what does he do? He goes down to Egypt. You can read about what happened. Abraham sinned against God in Egypt. You can read about it in the second half of Genesis chapter 12. Well, then we fast forward to Genesis 26. And we find Jacob's father, Isaac, is also suffering a famine in the land of Canaan during his time. And like his father, he's like, well, I guess I'll go down to Egypt. So he starts to go down to Egypt, but nope, God stops him in his tracks and tells him, do not go to Egypt. Stay here in the land of Canaan. And of course, God does provide. So now we come to the third generation. We come to Jacob and he's having an experience like his grandfather and his father had had. There's a famine in the land of Canaan. But notice he doesn't even try to go down to Egypt, does he? (laughs) Nope, (laughs) I'll just send these guys, right? He sends his sons to go to Egypt to buy food and to bring it back, but he only sends 10. He only sends 10. Look again at verse four. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. He did not send Benjamin. Apparently not much has changed. It's been many, many years Jacob is still showing favoritism, this time to the only son left of his favored wife, Rachel. He's showing favoritism to Benjamin. It's been a long time since Joseph has disappeared. But look at the text. He's living in fear. He's living in fear, fear that something will happen to Benjamin. He's willing to risk harm to the other 10 but not Benjamin. And listen, it would, be, it would be serious business to go down there in the midst of a famine, going with a bunch of money so that you can buy some food and bring it back. That's a tough assignment. He's not gonna send Benjamin. Do you see how the Lord works? Do you see the Lord at work? The Lord who created the world and everything in it has not just left it to itself. He even moves through famines to remain true to his promises. For he made a promise to Abraham. He swore by himself and it stands. He's gonna build a nation for himself, a nation that will be a blessing to the whole world. And so he's working in and through the hearts of rebellious brothers. He's working in and through a fearful father. We've seen already he's at work in an abandoned son so that he can continue to fulfill his covenant promise. Sure, we we see that, right? Because most of us know the rest of the story. We know how it unfolds. But listen, even in our lives, when hardships and sufferings come upon us, when we cannot even begin to know what chapter or page our story is even on, sometimes we wonder, is there still a story for me? I don't know if I'm in the middle, if I'm close to the end, or is it just beginning? I don't know. No matter where we are, listen, the Lord knows the story, He knows your story. He knows the beginning and he knows the end. He knows every day laid out for you. And he is most certainly at work. He's working in famine. He's working in war. He's working in cancer. He's working in want and in loss and trial and in death. He's working even in the midst of sin. Our sin and other sins. God is at work. And though his ways may seem harsh, as I'm sure they do to this family, we can know that his ways are good. His ways are good. Why? Because God is good. And then you say all the time, all the time, God is good. God is good. God is good. good. And if you don't believe that, look, look, we begin to see this goodness of God. Even when his ways seem harsh, we begin to see his goodness as we come to see how he moves, how he moves in his faithfulness toward Joseph and toward Joseph's brothers in verses 6 through 34 of chapter 42. And that's the second thing I want you to see in this text this morning, how the Lord moves. For many years, think about this, for many years, Joseph has made no effort to reconnect with his family. I spent too much time this week thinking about that. I'll think about that for a moment. Joseph's now the second in command of all of Egypt. Surely he could have asked for time off, right? Hey, Pharaoh, can I get a couple of weeks off to go visit my family? Surely he was there at the eastern edges of Egypt, near Canaan. Wouldn't he have even been curious to know? Wouldn't he have wanted to go and see Maybe I'm the only one who thinks like that. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? But now that God is at work in and through the famine, his brothers now come to him. It's like God had a plan. God's working. God's moving. They get to come for him in Egypt. They're not looking for him, but they find him. Look with me at verses six through 15, and I'll read this for us. Now, Joseph was governor, I'm in 42, beginning in verse six. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. And he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Joseph said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. So Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. Not Totally surprising, right? When they left him, he was an adolescent boy. Now he's a grown man. He's dressed in Egyptian garb. Looks much different. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And what else? He remembered his dream. And boy, it had to make more sense now than ever, right? Do you remember that dream? His sheath of grain standing and all the other sheaves of grain there before him bowing down. In the midst of a famine, coming to get grain, now here are these 10 brothers bowing before him, seeking to buy grain. Now, a question we have to think about over the coming weeks that we really can't know right now is where's Joseph's heart in this? Has Joseph forgiven them yet? I I don't think we know just yet, right? But what we can discern is he's doing what most of us would do in a situation like this. He's testing them. In fact, the text tells us he's testing them. He's testing them to see where their hearts are at. He's testing them to see what happened to my brother, what happened to my father, what's going on? Did they just go on and continue to to kill people and sell them off? What happened? He's testing them to see if they've changed. We're told that he treats them as strangers. He accuses them of being spies, but the brothers are adamant that they are, hopefully you caught this, they're honest men. (laughs) Something that we know is a lie something that Joseph surely knows is a lie. Joseph is clearly concerned for his brother Benjamin and his father, so he tests them. Verses 16 through 20 lay out for us how Joseph will test his brothers. I'll summarize, he orders them to choose one of them to go and fetch Benjamin, So he wants to have them come back and see if their story is true. And then, you know, these brave men, right? No one steps forward. So he takes all of them and throws them in prison for three days. And after that time, he brings them out and then orders them to have one remain behind in custody until all the other brothers go and get Benjamin and bring him back. And then let's pick up the story in verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth... These are honest men. Now look what God does. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. And Joseph turned away from them and he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And then this was done for them. We see God's grace clearly revealed here. For this is the first that we see any remorse for the sin that these men have committed against Joseph. Openly, again, not knowing that this is Joseph or that he can even understand them. He had been using an interpreter, right? So they don't even know he can understand them. So they're speaking in in Hebrew, right? So they openly confess their sin against Joseph. They even speak of details that we haven't been told up until this point, but we probably assumed them, right? They say that Joseph was severely distressed Joseph had begged for his life, and they didn't listen to him. And now, they confess their guilt. And notice how Joseph responds. It's moving, isn't it? He weeps. He turns away. We'll see this again later. He turns away, and he weeps. Surely... The gate blocking the bridge of forgiveness has been opened, if it hadn't already. But is the bridge of reconciliation what comes after? Is that still too far? That's the question here. To get that answer, we have to follow the story, not just through chapter 42, but the chapters that follow, which we will do. But we do see here, though, that Joseph does change course, right? He keeps Simeon behind, He keeps Simeon behind and he sends the brothers back to Canaan. And though his testing of them continues, his kindness does shine forth, knowing that they will be in need of grain for many years. He knows how long this is going to last. He has their money placed back in their sacks. It's a test, but it's also a blessing. They will be able to continue to buy food. And then the brothers see that the money's there, right? And how do they respond? Verse 28, it tells us, you can see it there, their hearts failed them. They were terrified. Verse 36 also shows Jacob's similar response to this when they returned to him. Would you look with me at verse 36? After they see that all the bundles of money were in their sacks, Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob's response here is one familiar to all of us. One surely that we've said in our seasons of trial, our seasons of distress and suffering, all this has come against me. All this has come against me. Here, I think we see the intersection the intersection of Joseph's testing and God's kindness. In Romans 2, 4, the apostle Paul reminds us that it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God will often bring us through difficult circumstances in order to lead us to a place of repentance, and that is kindness. Kindness. Sure, not all of our hardships are a a direct result of sin. Not all of our hardships are because of sin, though sometimes they are, our sin or other sins against us. If you look at the pages of the story before us, we see that the consequences facing Joseph's family are surely in part of sin, sin of his brothers against him. And just as God brought about the famine in order to ensure in order to make sure his promises to his people will remain true, he will faithfully work for them. I want you to notice that he also moves toward his people. He moves towards them so that they can experience his kindness. God wants them to experience his kindness, his kindness that leads to repentance. God wants them to be reconciled to one another. You see, it's, it's a hard path to walk path of reconciliation is hard, but God's people have a faithful guide as they traverse it. For if God only sought a reunion, if God was only looking for a reunion for Joseph and his brothers, the story may have followed a different path altogether. Joseph probably would have went on and traveled to Canaan and reunited with his family, and then once everything got awkward, he could just pack up and head back home. But God is doing something so much more profoundly wonderful God is moving toward his people in faithfulness because he wants more than a reunion. And as we watch this unfold in the weeks to come, we're gonna be able to stand back and marvel at his kindness, his kindness that brings about repentance and reconciliation because that's where this story is ultimately heading. And if you don't know the story and you wanna just go ahead and read ahead, just go read chapter 50. It's there and it's beautiful. Well, the brothers know that they must return to Egypt with Benjamin in order to retrieve Simeon and to get more grain. It's been a while. They've eaten all the grain. wonder what Simeon's thinking, right? Oh, wow. (laughs) They left me like we left Joseph. Notice there's no way that Jacob will allow it. As we turn to the last bit of this morning's passage, We're gonna come to see not only how God works and moves in his faithfulness, but I want us to see how he builds a bridge of faithfulness that only he can cross in order to accomplish his purposes for us in forgiveness and reconciliation. So again, if you're taking notes, that's our third point and our final point this morning, how God builds. Reuben, Reuben has a solution to the predicament in verses 37 and 38. Look what he says. Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Isn't Reuben so much like us? Isn't Reuben like us? Thinking that we alone hold the keys to all of this, that that we can determine how this is gonna go. Thinking that we can set the terms that will bring about peace. Jacob was wise to deny this. He was wise to deny it, for we have here is a a picture of how God refuses to allow us to be reconciled with him or with one another on our own terms. It's a picture how God sets the terms of true peace, how God builds a bridge that truly is too far for us to cross on our own. And this bridge becomes clear in those first 10 verses of chapter 43. We're going to come back to these verses next week. But for this morning's sake, look with me at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 43. Judah said to to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't delayed, we would now have returned twice. What Judah says and what Judah does here is a beautiful picture of what his future seed, the true seed of Abraham will do in the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness to his people kind of like being in a dark room and someone opens the door and all we can see is the shadowy figure there before us. So Judah here is but a shadow of the true son, the one who will come from the line of Judah who would one day go and offer himself as a pledge for the safety of his brothers. And though he would die, he would die and live again so that they may also truly live. For in this son, the one from the line of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Listen, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, you must see that the bridge of reconciliation is too far. It is too far for us to cross on our own because a bridge that we must cross alone, it doesn't even reach the other side. Those who try and traverse it on their own, according to their own terms, who might build their own bridge, they might think that my works, the works of my hands will bring about the reconciliation I look for. What do they find? They find themselves failing and falling falling in to the chasm that such a bridge was designed to cross. But those those who are able to rest in the forgiving and reconciling work of Jesus Christ, the one who continues to to work in faithfulness in us and, and move in faithfulness toward us, those who rest in his work will come to see that the bridge that he has built to make peace between us And the Father, the bridge that he has built, is the only bridge of forgiveness and reconciliation that truly exists. For we can only forgive one another. We can only truly be reconciled to one another when our forgiveness and our reconciliation flows from the forgiveness and the reconciliation that we have received in Christ Jesus. For Joseph and his brothers, this is a forward-looking faith. But for us, for you and me, this is something that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt to be true. That through the blood of Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. So more is gonna be said concerning this in the weeks to come. But for now, what I want you to do is I want you to praise God for his faithful work. Even in the hardships, you don't know the rest of the story, but God is at work. You know the ending, praise God that you'll be with him forever. But you don't know, you don't know what this might lead to. So praise God for his work, even in hardships. Praise God for his faithful movement toward us in his kindness, even when that kindness leads to testing, which leads to conviction of sin, which leads to repentance for sin, because it's God's kindness, it's his mercy that leads us to do that. So praise God for it. And let us praise God for that bridge of forgiveness and reconciliation that he has built between us. That bridge is the cross itself, the only place where we can find peace with God. So let us not only hear and answer that call I began with at the beginning to forgive one another, but let us also move toward one another, seeking more than just reunion. Let's move toward one another, seeking true reconciliation. It may be hard. It may even seem impossible. But because of what we have experienced through the faithfulness of God toward us in Christ Jesus, I think we can all agree that it's good and it's worthwhile to pursue it. So let's do it. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bullet?